Okay, today we're going to begin a concept that has caused a lot of backwards and forth between people, Christians especially, about the stance that the Bible says about whether you should be in the military, whether you should fight war, how far should you resist, should you resist with weapons, do you resist at all. Today's lesson is something that I think you'll find remarkably different than most of the information you'll find on the internet. We're going to look at the subject of when to war. And you'll always be conflicted or confused if you don't know what the Bible says about it or if you feel like you're doing something that goes against what the Bible says. I can build an Old Testament concept for war. But it's whether you can build a New Testament concept for war and it's whether you can build it for something other than spiritual warfare and also do you want to build something other than spiritual warfare. But also the main thing that I would say, what did Jesus say about it? And that's where you're going to find when you look up on the internet that everyone will show that Jesus was against it. That Jesus was not for it, that he tells you to turn the other cheek, he told Peter step down, he... He pulled the zealots back and all that. But I'm going to show you a different side of what Jesus said. And let's make sure that we're absolutely applying apples to apples. Because sometimes in scriptural theology, we take a scripture and we apply apples to oranges. Do you know what I'm meaning? You're taking the wrong scripture to target the wrong situation. So let's make sure that when we talk about what Jesus taught on the subject of war, that we're applying it at the time it needed to be applied. Because there's going to be a setting in history, which I'll end with. I don't know if I'll get to that point today. We'll see how far that I can get going down this. So, scriptural support, especially in the New Testament, and most especially in the teachings of Christ. Can you think of anything where he said that that's what we're supposed to do? Is war ever the correct response to evil? You ask that on us as a nation, and you find a lot of people take a view that maybe there should have never been a war. I mean, I was finding some interesting views on the American Revolution of the people that really love Jesus stuck with the British. So that would be leaving you tossed by the winds of sticking with anybody who had an evil idea or design for a nation for you to go underneath their power. So anytime there's a occupational force or what they went through in the world war, you're going to need to know what does Jesus say about it because people are very confused on this subject and you just can't find much scriptural evidence elsewhere. Now they will use Old Testament, but they won't use Jesus. So I'm going to give you some concepts from Jesus and I'm going to say the verse let it be established in the mouth of two witnesses or three. So that it's not just hanging on one. But I want to say, I want to start with kings must fight. And that's in Luke 14, 25-35. And it's a very interesting concept that Jesus is bringing up here. And he's like, count the cost. And if I ever say there's a cost, there's a cost to war. If you watch the movies, everybody runs out, hooray, hooray, hooray. And their uniforms look real clean, nice, but they come home dragging. And sometimes they're missing some uh, parts while they're dragging. It doesn't look the same. So counting the cost is very important concept to war. So I think it's very interesting that when Jesus wanted to 
illustrate the idea of you counting the cost for the kingdom, he picked a war analogy. Maybe because the kingdom takes a lot out of you. Maybe that you need to have certain concepts in mind. So I want to know what is Jesus trying to tell us in Luke 14? But he talks about kings making war. So it's the place of a natural king to make war. And Jesus uses an extremely strong military example here of cost counting. And he says kings have battles. Earthly kings have to see if they have enough defense or they will be considered a fool. If you go into something and you're not able to complete it, if you don't have enough manpower, if you haven't thought the logistics out, if you don't have good strategy, he says you will be considered a fool or you will be destroyed or you will be wiped out or it will end in a way you don't want it to end. So what I want to say is it's a very unusual analogy for Jesus to use here to say that kings make war. And this is a good time for him to say, but not me, I'm against it. But he didn't. And he let his analogy stand that there's a time and a place to make war. What I think is very interesting is he did not go into the ethics. He did not when he said to make war. What questions should come to your mind? What should you most consider? Before you go to war, you would think he would say, do you consider the fact that it says, shall I kill? Well, I mean, the Ten Commandments say I shouldn't. He doesn't ask the question that says, shall I kill? He doesn't go into the morality of the war. He doesn't even go to that subject, and that's where we always head to. It's the ethics of war. He did not. He did not say, shall I kill? He did not say, is this war moral? He did not ask the question, should Christians be involved in war? He did not ask, should believers be involved in war? You know what Jesus asked? He asked one thing. Will I win? <laughs> and that was the conclusion. You cannot read this passage without realizing that what Jesus is basing this on is, will I be successful? If you're going to build a building... Make sure you have what it takes to build that building because if you build a half-built building, you're going to look like a fool. And if you go to war and you have not logistically considered the options and you fail, it is a terrible thing to bring people to war and not win. So I'm going to tell you the first thing that Jesus has told you. If you go to war, win And that's where I'm going to start. That's where he looked at it. And that's what you see inside of Jesus is I count the cost. War is not pretty. He has a lot to tell us about war that if you live by a sword, you'll die by a sword. A person who just is in the mood for a fight all their life, it's not what he's talking about. Because that kind of law of sowing and reaping will always bring it on you. But is there a point in time where you have to make war? And when he says there is that point, and the army, it's a matter of do we have enough recruits? And I'm going to say natural kings do get recruits for war. And the thing you want to make sure your leader has is a will to win. 
You want to make sure that he is not just going out and making a show of the fight. It is wrong to fight a war that you are not willing to win. And that's where we've been making mistakes. So the ethics. In John 18.36, Jesus makes an explanation. They understand that about Jesus, but he explains this to his disciples. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then my servants would fight. And I should not be delivered to the Jews. So he makes a statement that the kingdom that he built was not of the world. But he tells you what a worldly kingdom does. They fight. And he says, and they would fight for a personal reason. They wouldn't let me be delivered over to the Jews. Like, we would win this. Like, I don't have to let this go down. So Jesus establishes a differentiation between these two concepts. He makes a distinction. He lets you see that kingdoms of the world, servants fight. And he makes it even in a personal way here. It's not just a, a nation against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group. He actually says, if it was of the world, if that was my objective, he said, then I would make it where they would fight and I wouldn't be delivered over. You know, you think about what Jesus is telling us. Jesus was not building a bunch of warriors. He wasn't building a lot of those highly military in their thinking because you know why? There's always going to be a battle to fight. There's always going to be a cause. There's always going to be a purpose. You know, he's basically saying, we don't want mercenaries <laughs> where you just go out and you're for hire because you want to fight. But you see that Jesus does not leave an anti-war taste in your mouth. That in the natural, there is such a thing as defending. There is such a thing in this verse as the responsibility of the fight. So kings of the earth have a responsibility to fight. In this verse, you see a defensive posture. In the verse before it, you see an offensive posture that you go into the battle to win. In this one, he tells you it is also a right of natural kingdoms to defend their ground. Can you do it a higher way? I hope so. The third one is Luke eleven twenty one, And in this verse, he says, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace. He uses this idea of an analogy of somebody who has to keep the devil out. Once the devil has left their life, then it's your responsibility to keep them out. And he uses the strong man idea. But again, you see the Second Amendment rights <laughs> right here that an armed man keeps his palace. It is not an unarmed man that can keep his home, his palace. If you have something everyone wants, you have to be armed. So again, you see the flavor of Jesus as not being anti-armed. He doesn't preach a sermon against arming. He doesn't preach a sermon against standing for defensive ideas to just let yourself be carried off or taken away. Can you use the God-given strength, authority, and power that he's given you where they're dragging you down a cliff, turn around, and they can't touch you? Yes. 
of course. Amen. But from a natural position in a country, there is also a natural defense and a natural warring that takes place. That war is a fact of life because of the evil on the earth. Now, when they discuss these scriptures, they do not discuss Jesus' position on war. You don't see an anti-war mentality in him. Do you know what you see in him? See if you can't trumpet. <laughs> see if you can't go above it. <laughs> you know, it's like if you can supersede it. Look, honestly, y'all, if America, if our country, if believers all over the world would fast and pray and come into corporate agreement, there's a lot we could do in the supernatural. We are being left to the natural because we are not acting in the supernatural. So while we should not lift our nose and so haughtily look down on people that are of the natural inclination to go to war and look down our nose because the truth is we're not doing what we're called to do in the spiritual is why the natural is having to take place. So if the spiritual doesn't take shape, if no one rises to the occasion and has that strength, then you move to the natural. And the natural is not the best solution. Jesus was not idealistic about it. He goes, it's, it, eventually you find someone a little bigger than you and quicker with the sword. So you see a posture that Jesus is giving us a better way to live, a higher way to live, the best way to live. And when we don't use it, it throws us into these chaotic positions that causes us to have to go into more of a natural posture. But you don't see Jesus slapping it, saying it's not him to do it that way, in the sense of it's anti-him. He actually just says he has a higher way. He's saying, I didn't come as a natural king. This is not my purpose, this trip, to come and set up a palace and a kingdom and arm it and to take the position that I'm not going to let anything go down wrong with my own personal life when that's the very purpose I came to give my life, nor does he say I'm not going to create a, a battle or a war. So when you read the eye for an eye world, it is actually one of the most fair things that Jesus could have said so that people don't do what they were inclined to do and it's if you take out their eye, then they kill you. Actually, that is not a violent idea. It's actually a backing you off and saying personal grudges should not be settled in a manner that you overdo what was done to you. Where people are like, you take an eye, you take a tooth, and I kill you. He actually says, make it fair, make it even. You like how he talks because this is the concept for the court system here. He's talking the court system of eye for an eye. This is a fair judgment made by courts. It is not to be mixed up. His rendering for how a court should make a judgment so they don't over penalize and get it mixed up with what he says militarily takes place in a natural kingdom. In fact, it's foolishness. It is foolishness. That's what he's saying. It's foolishness in a natural kingdom to not defend yourself. If you do not have the strength 
to pull down God as the protection of your country, you must show a strong military presence. And you see that in Jesus where he put swords on people. So I would say that just as much as you don't want to have the wrong mindset on the one extreme of being in the mood to kill everyone that crosses your path, that does you wrong, that's a personal offense. I'm seeing now that we have flipped gears and we have literally come into a weakened, cowardly, pacifist mindset that was not what Jesus taught nor believed. And it has caused us a problem. So we are neither doing the top nor are we doing the lower side as Christians. We are doing neither in most stances. Since the world is not governed by grace, it now falls under Old Testament law. So what has happened is the entire climate of the world, when it doesn't have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle the disputes, it does take a military force or it does take a court system. It takes something to stop evil. So this makes us fall under that world. So you have a, in a fair world, you make the punishment fit the crime. But unfortunately, the court world is not as fast a pace as the crime world is now. <laughs> so the crimes are so outweighing society in general, the courts are packed. And there's a refusal to go against someone that's high up. And so we've come into a place that makes a republic or a democracy, a, a republican form of a democracy, not work. And that's that men have lost integrity. And a democracy will not stand without integrity. If you study the different ones of the democracies, when men lose their integrity, there is not enough courts, enough policemen, or enough soldiers to defend a lack of integrity. It is what causes the collapse from the inside out. So what has moved into our position as a Christian is that the world starts interpreting our Bible for us. They define what a Christian should look like. They start telling us our scripture. <laughs> and you know why? Because there's a big vacuum void gap. We don't know our verses. The biblically illiterate believers are terrible. They have not taken the time to comb through the scriptures and find what is the Lord's stance on this? And if there's something that they don't agree with, they just change the verses. I have a problem with Christians overall changing some concepts that I don't see as anti-biblical. I see it as there's a better way than what man has done. But we're making a tolerance gospel ethical that was not in Scripture. And it has created a false narrative of what the earth should be like. And it's actually a picture of that peace that's a false peace coming on the earth. It's that thing of a false global security that we're giving. And it opens us up to that final man that will stand in opposition of everything that Jesus had. Jesus was not that weak, cowardly picture of tolerance. Jesus literally gave that sacrifice 
once and for all. He was not painting that in a different sense. So the world is interpreting our Bible. And should the Christian fight for his country? That question being asked. Shouldn't the Christian always stand for peace and pray for their enemies rather than engaging them in battle? Defeating the enemy versus, listen to what the other side is. The difference between having a mentality that the enemy must be defeated versus the enemy is misunderstood. Our enemies are misunderstood doctrine. And that is what's prevalent. That we think that, bless their hearts, they're misunderstood. And if we only understood them better, when enemies think of your enemy is misunderstood, it's so they can win over them. That's where I would say what they're doing with us is they're misunderstood so that we don't have any kind of resistance for the evil that's in their hands. So Jesus gives us a very strong concept of what governs a natural world that is full of evil. In Hebrews 11, 32 through 34, as the other writers of the New Testament expound upon the heart of Jesus on this. They have the same concept, Then you'll hear it. This is the Hall of Faith. It's the Hall of Fame of the Hall of Faithers. And he said, what shall I say more? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews, he says, who through faith subdued kingdoms. So you see a New Testament writer saying that faith caused them to subdue a kingdom. In other words, you want to take an out-of-control, aggressive, evil kingdom and subdue it. You want to get them under your feet. It's what we did when Germany and Hitler became out of control. Now Germany is peaceful. Why? Because we battered it until it became subdued. Japan is now peaceful. Why? (laughs) Because we took evil and put it under our feet. So subduing evil is a part of faith. The next part of Hebrews, it says they wrought righteousness. The one thing you don't think you're doing is being righteous in this sort of idea. But watch what it says. They wrought righteousness when they waxed valiant in fight, turning to flight the foreign armies. So you see a mentality here brought to the New Testament that it was by faith and by righteousness that those who were very skilled in fighting turned foreign armies to running. And I would say, yes, this is spiritual, And this is physical. It should be happening literally that we're turning our enemies to flight. The very presence of us, because God's with us, the very fact that God fights our battles for us, like let's say in the sense of Israel, there's a fear that comes that is a part of the blessing that people will be afraid of you. When people start losing their fear of you, it's because you're losing your God. When people start losing their fear of you, it's because you're more like them than you are about God, than like God. And that's why we lose our stance in the world as the greatest power on earth, is because we have 
let go of the greatest power on earth. Yeah. <laughs> he had the shield that was on us. So it was called faith and it wrought righteousness. These men have something in common. They were men of faith and they were all men of war. And their mission was to subdue. Of course, I will prefer to train you of doing it in the spiritual. It is the highest way. It is the best way. And if you can bring a nation together to repent and to lift the Lord up and to cause a righteous verdict to come down from heaven against our enemies, it is by far the best. But unfortunately, the complacency and the apathy is causing a chaotic world. Now, one guy that's the father of our faith, one of the patriarchs, you don't think about him being a warrior. You don't think of Abraham the warrior. You don't think of Abraham as a military leader. You don't think of him of actually having and housing his own army. But the funny thing about Abraham in Genesis 14, 13 is that when they captured Lot, it, it, he didn't go into a, a, a courtroom negotiation with him. He actually went into battle. He got his army together. And 13 is where you find a little piece of the scripture that tells you so much. He had like 300 and something trained men. Now, I don't know many rich men that have 300 and something trained men at their disposal, but they were prepared for the moment when something like this would happen. And he had to rescue his sorry old nephew. I oh, know, I'm sorry. We'll call him by how the writers call him the righteous lot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. When you face a spiritual battle, it's helpful to have allies. Stay prepared. Be prepared for warfare. Stay prayed up. Authority. Allies. You know, some people say, I don't know if I agree with you on this. I don't believe in battle. I don't think I want to waste my time or risk my life for my sorry nephew. He cheated me. But Abraham did. He didn't let the enemy take what was his. So allies, I want you to notice this, are not friends. We learned that in World War II. It's somebody we have the same goal with, the same enemies. They're our partners in crime. <laughs> I'm using that loosely. Someone who helps you in war. The greatest covenant partner is God being with you in a fight. Notice this statement. Religion does not unman us. Religion does not unman us us. It does not make us effeminate. <laughs> it does not make us cowards. It does not bring out that weak side in us. The girly side. Religion does not take your masculinity away from you. It does not unman you. So, in the Abraham model, he didn't live in combat, but he had an army trained and he used that army I don't think that our life was made to be in natural combat all the time I don't think that's how it's supposed to be 
but when it calls for a battlefield conflict, when there's a principle or something that must be won, you have to be prepared for it. You have to be prepared for when the enemy strikes. In what areas do we have spiritual battles? And then I would have to ask you, how are you right now resisting evil? I would like for you to write it down and say, this is how currently in my life, right now, I'm resisting the evil coming upon the earth. Do you have plans? Is it all plans? Are you currently resisting? I think there's enough evil out there that you could tell me. I am currently doing this to resist evil. So Abraham Prosperous does not abandon Lot in adversity. Solomon, people doing well did not get involved in anyone else's misery or needs. So most of the time, people will just let other people go if they're very prosperous, but not Abram, not Abraham. He actually got involved. So there's some concepts here of is there such a thing as a holy war? Perhaps there is no such thing as a holy war on earth with men. Only God himself can fight a holy war. When Jesus comes back at Armageddon and frees the world from tyranny and the enslavement of the Antichrist, let me tell you what words it uses. In Revelations 19.11, it uses these words, In righteousness he does judge and make war. So I'm going to take the position of a righteous war is a moral war. It is moral to defend your nation from a brutal people who would wish to enslave your citizens and remove your basic freedoms to worship God and to raise your family, as God says. Ecclesiastes speaks into this. In, in Ecclesiastes 3.8, it says, There is a time for war and there is a time for peace. So that backs up my concept of saying, being ready for your time of war. Like Abraham, being prepared. Again, I would say, the more that you sweat in peacetime, the less you bleed in wartime. Abraham went out. He had a strategy. The Bible doesn't tell us how he did it, but everybody was impressed with his results. And he subdued the kings. And all we know about his strategy is he did it at night. When they rode into the battle, you could picture him riding donkeys, camels, horses. What did he ride? We're not sure. He rode something. But it would have been funny to think of him fighting it all on the donkeys, all on camels. I mean, it all gives you different pictures. Abraham the warrior. So as we look at the concept of righteous wars and moral wars, the concepts of capital punishment, self-defense, and national defense, those are the things that are on the table. When I was a small girl, I was at my grandmother Ruth's house, my grandfather Ruth. A man came to see us named Jack. And Jack brought me a lot of gifts. He was somewhere, I think, in East Texas. 
He gave me bullets that he found in the Civil War. He would go to the original sites and I have all kinds of a collection of Jack gave me some of his best pieces. Jack didn't have children. But what fascinated me about Jack was not his hobby to blow off steam, was the fact that what Jack did was that he was the executioner in Huntsville. And he would throw the switch as he gave lethal injections, lethal injections in the electric chair. And he was the one that did the electric chair. He would throw the switch. And so what would happen as a child, I was very interested in how many did you kill? You know, normally they keep this conversation away from children. I was getting Jack away from the grown-ups so I could have the conversation I wanted to have with, uh, what did Jack do? And Jack says, I don't know. I have no idea how many I've killed. Maybe it could be all of them, it could be none of them. Because they had several guys and they all throw the switch. And no one knows which one switch actually does the trick. So it left their conscience. They put something between their conscience and what went down. Mm -hmm. In other countries, their executioners take pride and pleasure and they become bloodthirsty. In our culture, they try to distance you from the occupational hazards of your job. Self-defense, national defense, capital punishment. You know, I remember this conversation with the Israelis. You know, everybody goes, those barbaric Israelis, you know, we read about them in the Bible and all this. You know, people go just go crazy over it. But I got so tickled that this one-eyed guy who had fought in 1967 in the war and some things that had happened in his life, he told me, we are against capital punishment. You Texans, I mean, y'all just really enjoy killing, you know, the murderers and the rapists and just different people. And he was like in shock that we were so barbaric. And so I thought it was interesting hearing a Jewish perspective of making fun of us. And he goes, how as Christians could you possibly justify the fact that you use capital punishment? And I go, yes, how as Christians, when we believe in grace and y'all believe in the Old Testament law, are y'all not doing capital punishment? (laughs) You know, and it is kind of a reversal to think that they've walked away from it. In capital punishment, from a Texas point of view, they see as very barbaric. So... What happens? What causes there to be a point in time? Because the concept that I was bringing to the table is when to war? When do we go to war? And I like this statement that was made, and it was made over here in Sunday school class one day. God is merciful, and he's constantly trying to inject mercy into the world. So when to war? When do we finally go? Ah, Sam, I give up on you, God. Uh, you're just not showing mercy and it's still a mess, so I'm going to take it into my own hands. Is that what war is? Sometimes. But when it's a righteous battle or, or when it's a moral war, when do you decide the mercy is not going to be injected in this situation? And the statement that was made was it's not that mercy ran out. It's that time runs out. It's not that a person's mercy runs out with God. For he's ever merciful. He never changes his position of goodness and mercy. 
He is all that we believe in Jesus Christ. But our time runs out for receiving that mercy. And that is a very unique position in Scripture. Last night I had fun studying the window of time. Jesus gives us what's what the slaves tried to do, the play the time element of, my master is a long time in coming, so I'll sow my wild seeds. You know, there's a lot of people saying, I wonder if I could end up being that thief on the cross. And someone asked me, well, you know, what about the thief on the cross? That gives me hope for, for all these people we've been believing for to come in. I said, the difference is the thief on the cross acted when he knew about Jesus. It's the fact that all these people we're talking about know, but don't want to do it. Yeah. It's that knowing that's causing the problem. It's not that God isn't able to take a man that's nailed down, that has never lived for the Lord, borne any fruit, and will not bear fruit, and still receiving into his arms. It's not that that's not mercy. It's the fact that we're trying to bank on that to have no fruit in our life and see if we can get judgment to work in our favor. That is, to me, foolish. It shows not a real belief. No, let me say, it shows not a real love for the Lord. You don't love him. Because if you love him, you'll bear fruit. So if you're trying to cheat God out of his fruits, if you're trying to cheat him out of your purpose for your life, cheat him out of selling out, I wouldn't bank on the thief on the cross. But you are working against a window of time. And so I'm asking you about your window. Because God, he lets the sins of the Amorites accumulate for 400 years so they would be full. And then he sends his own people in as the instrument of judgment on them. So I want you to write down some of these verses. Genesis 15:16, Very unique scripture about the window of time. In the fourth generation they return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a certain chalice, cup, window, something where it's not the measure of sin to a certain point of busting open where time has run out. You see this in Joshua 24:15. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So you see it move from Genesis to Joshua. Amorite, the name of the most powerful tribe of the Canaanites, is used here as the common name of all the inhabitants of Canaan. I want you to also write down Genesis 10:5 and Judges 6:10 next to that one. Daniel 8 pulls this in in verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom Listen to this. When the transgressors are come to the full. So we see this in our, our last days book of the New Testament, our Daniel book. When the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. But you catch that phrase that the transgressors are come to the full line. Matthew 23, 32 through 35. Jesus reiterates this very unusual word unless you've studied these windows of time. And he says to the men, fill up the measure of guilt of your fathers. Look, they haven't completed the sins. Let the family continue it. Don't be such hypocrites. Finish it. 
your fathers were evil, don't say, my fathers killed the prophets when they came in, but I'm not like that. He says, go ahead and finish it. There's a measure. Mm. Add in Jeremiah 51.13 with that and 1 Thessalonians 2.16. All men's sins are kept by God in a book of remembrance. Not one of them is lost. I'd rather it be my tears, not my sins. And as God exactly observes the number and measure of men's sins, so he determines within the scope of how far and how long that there's a time of the mercy on sinful men and nations. What will be the period of his patience? And when that comes, the measure is full and their destruction infallibly comes. That's the best that we can do with the measure. But I thought our college said it much better. It's not that his mercy fails, wears out, time does. Acts 17.31 is the verse I was looking for. No one puts these in these lists as you search your Bible to go through it. But I remembered Acts said something, something along these lines that's so significant here. But Acts calls it the times of ignorance that God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. So, the times of ignorance are over. There was a time that the times of ignorance were overlooked. Not now. It says now the times of ignorance are over. And so we see this as it it comes to a, a culmination. And when that takes place, there are those devoted to destruction. And you see the line blur between God's people and the world because in these verses it says, basically, the distinction is not because God's people are so righteous. <laughs> in Leviticus 18, 26 through 28, keep my statutes and my commandments and don't commit these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells in you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, thus the land is defiled. Listen to his word. Lest the land vomit you. Leviticus, the land vomits. Where do you think that Revelation got that concept? Hot or cold, or I will vomit. So much of what we read that we think is just New Testament language or thoughts actually pull from an Old Testament concept so you can bring that concept into your understanding to understand what Revelation is talking about. That it's just more of the same. Don't go into a place and act just like them. Don't be on city council and act just like those that are there. Don't be in a place and be like the people you work with. Be different. Don't be in a school and be like the people that are not doing it right. It defiles it. Deuteronomy 9, 3 through 20. This one, he tells them, it's not Israel's righteousness that's causing me to give you the promised land, (laughs) but it's judgment on the Canaanites. So you see it as God wasn't just needing land, so let's just kill somebody because they need killing. But he says, it's actually judgment on the Canaanites. It's not your righteousness that's given you the land. 
We might should remember that as believers. Moses tells the Israelites that Canaan will be conquered to execute justice upon the inhabitants and to fulfill his oath, God's oath, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness. <laughs> the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. I've heard Gentiles go, because we're so Christian and have grace, the Jews no longer are. Oh, it's Max. And that's why Romans 11 was written and says, don't think that you can't be chopped off too. <laughs> he says, you stand as grafted in to a root. And so this is the attitude of smugness here because I'm a Christian and I'm full of grace and I have so much more understanding. It's understanding that we're judging ourselves by intentions but not by heart and fruit. It is not for your righteousness, for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess the land, but it's because of the wickedness of the nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Strong words. Numbers 31 through 20. This is where it tells about killing the Mennonite women. And it says, The relations with the Mennonite women were in direct violation of God's command in Deuteronomy 7, 3-4. Neither shall thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give to one of their sons, nor his daughter shall you take as a wife for your son. For he will turn away your son from following me, that they may serve other gods, so will the anger of Jehovah be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. So you think your kids should intermarry with unbelievers? It doesn't say your son will win the woman. It says the woman will win your son. As a result of these events, God instructed the Israelites to vex the Mennonites and smite them, for they vex you with their walls. Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 18, make the distinction between the people and the land of the inheritance versus the other cities. In this one, it lays it out, the destruction of the seven nations. And so we end with the concept of the destruction of the seven nations. And in this verse in Deuteronomy 20, it actually lists out the nations. It lists six, but you go up to the one that we began with, the Midianites, and it makes the number seven. And with that, I think we'll, let's pause in our study of win to war. Amen.